Hey there, it's me, Malika. Today, I'm handing over the microphone to my Al Jazeera colleague, Jennifer Glass, to let her share what she's been working on. And I'll see you soon. As U.S. bombs started falling on Baghdad on January 17, 1991, Salah Nisrawi, an Iraqi journalist, was struggling to file his stories for the Associated Press. Communications were gone. We, we didn't have any means for filing. Telephone lines were cut off. Communications were knocked down. Then later on, the Associated Press managed to send uh, a sat phone. Uh, but that was very late in the war. Still, Salah had a job to do. He had to tell the world the story of what Desert Storm was doing to his country. Thirty years later, his memories of that war are not good ones, not for Iraq. Thirty years after that tragedy, Iraq now is living the years of ashes. This is part three of our series, After Desert Storm. And if you haven't heard parts one and two yet, I'd urge you to go back and listen. You'll hear about Iraq's initial invasion of Kuwait, the first operations of Desert Storm, and the U.S.-led counterattack. It's the voices of the people who were there fighting and the people who were just trying to survive. Today in part three, we tell the story of what happened to Baghdad and where Desert Storm has left the region and the world. 30 years later, has it all gone to ashes? Or are there a few things that have survived? I'm Jennifer Glass, in for Malika Bilal this week, and this is The Take. The truth is, Salah Nasrawi had been a war correspondent through the Iraq-Iran War. And before Iraq first invaded Kuwait on August 2, 1990, he was getting a little tired. Before the 1990 war, I decided to quit. It wasn't an easy decision then. You know, you have to go through a very complicated process in Iraq. You have to go to the Ministry of Information to quit. There was an interview process, and it was sensitive. An Iraqi journalist working for an American news outlet like the AP asking to quit right before a war. Iraqi officials weren't easy on him. The Minister of Information himself, I had a meeting with him, and I told him I am writing to AP to apologize, to excuse me from this. And he threatened me that if I do that, AP and the rest will believe that I am under pressure from them. So they made you stay in your job, is that correct? Yes. So as Iraq invaded Kuwait, he worked. And five months later, as the American bombs came down on Baghdad, he worked. It was terrible when you see houses, buildings, bridges, cinemas knocked down. One of the cinema houses, it was where I used to go when I was still a kid. Every night you expect that a bomb will land on your house, on your neighborhood, and you will be 
gun, you will be killed like all others. I was horrified to learn every day that neighbors, friends were killed by shelling. I went to places shelled, houses, uh, government buildings, which you go to finalize in you know, some paperwork. And you will find that all gone. You will find that all the papers you used to have from these places were no longer there. You can imagine how life changed in four weeks for all Iraqis. People had to bring water from the river to bathe or drink, he says. There was no fuel, no electricity. Everything went down with the electricity. You didn't have proper food. You open the fridge and you will find that everything is rotten there. In the first few days after the U.S.-led coalition started bombing Baghdad, Saddam retaliated, launching Scud missiles into Israel and Saudi Arabia. And by the end of January, Iraqi forces attacked Khafji, a Saudi city on the Gulf just south of the Kuwaiti border. They were quickly pushed back by a U.S.-led air attack, Saudi forces, Qatari forces, and U.S. Marines. And the U.S.-led airstrikes on Baghdad continued. Many of the targets were strategic, like military bases and leadership sites, but not all of them. On February 13th, before dawn, Salah got a knock at his door. It was a neighbor. He'd come to tell him something was happening at a shelter nearby. So Salah drove to the shelter. When I reached there, I saw a real hell. To me, it was doomsday. The shelter was still on fire, and firemen were fighting. But outside, dead bodies scattering everywhere. Almost all of them were burned, disfigured. I couldn't count how many, but the scene was horrible. When you see this kind of destruction and the kind of casualties the Americans are inflicting, and you're working for an American news organization, how did you feel? I felt very bad about it. But he had a job to do. So I called my office to file a few lines about the story. They didn't believe it. They thought they need a confirmation from the U.S. military. Even though you were there, you were there, you saw the bodies. that That is part of my story. A journalist covering a war for the enemy from the battlefield. (laughs) I realized that Uh, they might be hesitant. He wasn't naive, just really frustrated. But rather than fight with the editor or sit on the story, Salah did the only thing he could think of to get it out there. I thought the best way to do it, I went to one of my British colleagues, the BBC reporter correspondent, Jeremy. Jeremy Bowen? Yes, yes. He's still working for the BBC. So I told him, look, uh, Jeremy, this is what is going on. Dress up and come on. I thought that this is the best way to have one big news organization to have the story and put it on the wire. It was frustrating. It was very, very frustrating for me. 
Eventually, Salah got his report out, and so did Jeremy Bowen. Men were going from corpse to corpse trying to identify wives and children. I saw one man who was carrying sooty, blood-stained rings. He just found his wife's remains and taken them from her fingers. Why I lose my wife and my children? I reported what I saw. I was amazed when the Pentagon in Washington and the Ministry of Defense in London put out statements saying that the shelter was a military command center. I thought they probably made a mistake. More than 400 Iraqi civilians had been killed when Al-Amriya shelter was hit by two 2,000-pound laser-guided so-called smart bombs. Mostly women and children burned alive. I'm very sorry, I mean. This is ugly. This is uh, any human. No morale. Iraqi General Abdul Wahab al-Qassab never wanted this war. He wanted Saddam to pull out of Kuwait, and he also wanted his people to survive. He was horrified by the destruction of his country. How dare a first-class military come and hit a civilian shelter? I, I don't understand. I can't understand. The Iraqi military was being hit hard in and around Kuwait, too. As the weeks passed, Salah started noticing more Iraqi soldiers in Baghdad, and he made the city's bus stops part of his reporting rounds. Bus stations and terminals, soldiers were coming from Kuwait. Some of them actually were walking, walking the whole distance, something like 700 kilometers from Kuwait to Baghdad, exhausted. And it wasn't just a few of them. Like General Al-Qassab, many of them did not believe in Iraq's invasion of Kuwait to begin with. Tens of thousands of people deserted them. There were mass desertion from the army. They didn't have any confidence, in, neither in the war, nor in Saddam or the leadership. Five weeks after Desert Storm began, on February 22nd, U.S. President George H.W. Bush again issued an ultimatum, insisting Iraqi forces withdraw from Kuwait by noon the next day. Regrettably, the noon deadline passed without the agreement of the government of Iraq to meet demands of United Nations Security Council Resolution 660, as set forth in the specific terms spelled out by the coalition, to withdraw unconditionally from Kuwait. It was the beginning of a new phase to the war. I have therefore directed General Norman Schwarzkopf, in conjunction with coalition forces, to use all forces available, including ground forces, to eject the Iraqi army from Kuwait. The idea is to uh, disrupt the support to the uh, Iraqi frontline forces. When the ground invasion came, the Iraqi army, which was in Kuwait, was ordered all of a sudden to withdraw. So you can't imagine a thrust of about 300,000 people or 200,000 people who were in defense of the new border. Came back, people were just leave and go, leave and go, because it had not been what planned. It was a chaotic situation. 
but Navy SEAL Commander Eric Olson and Kuwaiti Commander Nasir al-Husseinan saw an opportunity. They were still aboard their ships in the Gulf. Having already liberated a number of Kuwaiti islands and oil platforms, they were feeling good. They were ready to head home. The day of the agreement that the Iraqis would leave Kuwait, we were off the shore pretty far north. Uh, We could see Kuwait City. We were engulfed in the smoke from the burning oil fields as it was blowing out over the Gulf. A lot of fireworks were launched that night, so we were under a display of fireworks, including a few from the Kuwaiti ships that we were on. And the next morning, we steamed into Kuwait City. They took some precautions. They checked the harbor for booby traps and mines. And then the Americans who were on these Kuwaiti ships put all of the Kuwaitis ashore so that they could try to find their families. I did not want anybody for some bigger operational, bureaucratic, political purpose to stop the Kuwaitis with whom we had lived for so many weeks from getting ashore and checking on their families. So I sent, and unless otherwise directed, I intend to steam the Kuwaiti Navy into Kuwait City and nobody otherwise directed. They were the first Kuwaitis back into Kuwait. But the war wasn't officially over, so the Kuwaitis still had to come back to the ship. And almost all of them did. Some came back with tears in their eyes and some with smiles on their faces. Kuwaiti Commander al-Husseinan had spent the last weeks of the war scouring Kuwaiti islands for Iraqis, shipping them off to Saudi Arabia and clearing out leftover mines. But that day, he finally steamed into port as well. He got off the boat, But when he touched land, he knew for the first time that this was a different Kuwait. Not Kuwait, which I knew. Total destructions. Fires everywhere, smell of dead bodies. It was terrible. There was no fresh food or fresh water even. Al-Husseinan's wife and kids were still in Bahrain. But his parents were there in Kuwait. And he hadn't seen them in months. But he didn't have a car, just a ship. So he walked to the street and waited, hoping someone would stop. Maybe somebody would pick me up, and they have machine guns on my shoulder, pistols in my size. And one guy stopped and took me. The man drove him to his parents' house. But he also insisted on warning his parents that their son would be arriving shortly. He knew it would be a shock. My father was very heavy jumping on the <laughs> street that, yes, so about uh, half an hour later, I came and knocked the door. And uh, so that's how I met my father and my mother. Uh, they were so happy. I gave the kids some chocolates. This is the best thing that <laughs> and I gave my mother and father some apples and oranges. It was something for them. Something. <laughs> After weeks of training with coalition forces and crossing from Saudi Arabia into Iraq, Kate Aidy, the BBC correspondent, eventually crossed into Kuwait from the other side. We took a helicopter ride into Kuwait. We found ourselves amongst some of the first who were in there. Looking down out of the helicopter, there was a massive traffic jam. We went north from the center of Kuwait, just a short time after 
all of the fighting. A scene of absolute devastation and what has now been known as the Basra Road, the road leading out of Kuwait northwards towards Baghdad. Basra Road was known as the Highway of Death. Yes, there was just hundreds and hundreds of vehicles burnt out or smashed. And clearly there had been a mass exodus of terrified people because these there were military vehicles in the middle of them. But as we went from vehicle to vehicle, a lot of them had soldiers' bodies in them. Iraqi soldiers had just grabbed everything and tried to flee. It was a mass desperate exodus. And most were dead. A lot of them died in the crossfire of an engagement between the American armored cavalry and a group of Saddam soldiers. But huge amount of fire had, of course, hit the people coming up the road for several hours. And people had driven into this hail of bullets, explosives and everything. And that wasn't all, Kate says. Further up the road to the north, people who had got out in vehicles a bit before were victims of what you can only and was always described as a turkey shoot by American helicopters, seeing these people fleeing up the road. And that too was a dreadful sight. Was there a moment when you knew it was all over? We knew that it had been accomplished. The Iraqis had been chased out of Kuwait City. We knew there were possibly considerations about going further, going towards Baghdad. But we were very aware of the military order driving that retaking of Kuwait, which was to liberate Kuwait. The Allies had agreed to that. They hadn't agreed anything further. The American military would confirm a couple of hundred people had been killed on the Basra Road and the Iraqi military had abandoned Kuwait. There was a feeling that the U.S. should stop before more civilians died. For Iraqis like General Al-Qassab, it was already too much. It was a highway of death. The soldier, when he lost trust in the uh, command, he, he panicked. So everybody was panicked. This is the first time the Iraqi army had been humiliated, which I'm very sorry of. It was one of the best of the Middle East one of the best of the Arab armies. The military was your life at this point. It was. It was my life. It was a tragedy, actually, to leave the army. But eventually, General Al-Qassab's disagreement with Saddam about Iraq invading Kuwait caught up with him. He was forcibly retired. And on February 28th, George Bush announced a ceasefire. Kuwait is liberated. Iraq's army is defeated. Our military objectives are met. Kuwait was free, and Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, came to an end. But this would not be the last war between Iraq and the United States. How do you think this war, this first war, changed the political dynamics in the region? The invasion of 2003 is a fulfillment of which Desert Storm failed to do. Both the administrations were were Republicans, George Bush, father and son. 
brought a lot of tears to the Iraqis. What do you think that they wanted? They wanted to take Iraq and the oil. You have world oil reserves. The Iraqis felt no negative feelings toward the United States before Desert Storm. There was no any real issue between Iraq and the United States. All the negative things came after that. Even ISIS came after that. The, the militias came. So all this were consequences. First phase was Desert Storm. Second phase was the invasion of Tuatai. After the second U.S.-led war in 2003, Al-Qasab was forced to leave Iraq. The militias had become too much of a threat to him and his family. So he moved to the United States. I came here to this country. And American people are very great people, very friendly people. But the American politics are not. After the February 28th ceasefire, Kuwaiti commander Al-Husaynan had his country back. And eventually things would get cleaned up. It's hard to find traces of the war with Iraq now on the streets of Kuwait. But Al-Husaynan says things were never really the same after the war. There were small changes, like Kuwaiti's newfound love for 4x4s. Before the invasion, it's very hard to find family has 4x4 cars. Now everybody has, every house. Do you know why? Because during the invasion... Whoever had no 4 by 4 cannot cross the desert. He's stuck in Kuwait. See what I mean? Now everybody has 4 by 4 And not just in Kuwait. All over the Gulf, white Toyota Land Cruisers are ubiquitous. But there are other, less tangible changes, too. Kuwaitis love Kuwait. They love their government. They love their country. But I don't know what happened after the liberation. Things have changed. I mean, before we used to have trust. We used to have neighbors. We believe each other. But now, uh, I don't know, things changed. We'll never be back like before. And he says the relationship between Arab countries may have changed the most. Before Saddam's invasion, nobody could have imagined an Arab country attack another Arab country. Nobody. It didn't happen in the recent history and has never happened, and nobody think about that. We all used to think about the Arab League. We are one nation, one country. We've been divided by the English or by the French or by the... Okay. But after Saddam invasion, this broke the rule. Uh, just make a crack. That crack has not gone away, he says. Especially when you see Yemen, Jordan, Sudan, Palestinians, they went to the other side. It could happen again. So that's why we went straight away to the GCC, the Gulf Council countries. This said, okay, we trust each other. We know each other. We are the Arabian Peninsula. We stick together. The Gulf countries supported Kuwait during the war. But even there, there are problems. I mean, even the GCC now, we are, we, we are the closest ever could be. We are all, all Bedouins. We are from the desert. We are all original Arabs here. But even so, we have problems between us. I hope this problem is resolving now by Kuwait is doing its best to do it. Hopefully it will go away and we go back as before. Commander Nasser al-Husaynan is now Vice Admiral Nasser al-Husaynan, and he's retired. 
He sent us a photo of his bronze star for heroic achievement from the United States for his efforts during Desert Storm. And as far as he's concerned, because the United States helped free his country, Kuwait's relationship with the U.S. will always be strong. I think our relation with America is unshakable, that's for sure. America is not the president. It's, they have system, plan, principles. This is what we, we rely on. So the principle of the country and the people. The people are peace-loving, they want justice. I fully trust the Americans. Including Commander Olson, whom he remembers fondly. Olson is now Admiral Eric Olson, also retired, the first Navy SEAL to achieve four stars. Looking back on what he'd done in Kuwait then, he says it was a success. My feeling was that this is the way it should be, that all of our missions were successful. We felt like they had some impact. We felt like we had made friendships, had bonded in ways that a few others had had the opportunity to do with our Kuwaiti counterparts. And in the end, we brought everybody home, every Kuwaiti and every American came home. But knowing there was a second Gulf War just 10 years later, Olson says Desert Storm wasn't perfect. I think its impact on the region was not as great as we might have hoped. It ended up not being a permanent solution to anything. It was merely the eviction of Iraq from Kuwait. And and then in the end, it probably encouraged us to go back in uh, later on with less trepidation. And America's military success in Desert Storm may have meant losing other battles in the years ahead. Other nations wrote about the impossibility of challenging the United States in a direct conflict, and so they would have to find other ways, the sort of the concepts of asymmetrical warfare, of increased terrorism, and the ways of confronting an adversary without a direct military force-on-force conflict, I think in some ways grew out of that. Salah, the Iraqi journalist, described Desert Storm as the beginning. That was uh, how it all started for Iraqis, the tragedy of its people, the tragedy of its state, the journey toward Iraq's uh, destruction. That was the war which opened the, the way for more wars and more catastrophes uh, for Iraq. The tragedy is still going on. I mean, the, the mistakes, the horrible things happened uh, 2003 until now. It should be attributed to Saddam's uh, big, big uh, folly in, in, in Kuwait. Salah also left Iraq only to return later and find his house destroyed and all his writings about the war and everything else was gone. It was looted. Everything was taken. My pictures, my memory, my kids' memories, my belonging, everything I collected for all these years, they took it. And maybe you remember Uday on the last episode. He was 11 and preparing for midterms when the U.S. bombs first hit Iraq. He's in his 40s now. That moment 
took Iraq from a developing nation that was, yes, recovering from a war, but highly educated, yearning to progress and to join the modern world. And we were completely taken to the opposite side. I don't see anything that benefited Iraq from that war. And I think Iraq has gone backwards since that day. We haven't had peace. We haven't had any kind of calm where people can actually think and try to progress and try to make life better or try to move in a, in a better direction. The invasion of Kuwait, that was the beginning of the end of Iraq. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Ney Alvarez, Dina Kisbe, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilvey, Alexandra Locke, and me, Jennifer Glass, in for Malika Bilal this week. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producer is Natalia Aldana. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. If you haven't, I'd very much encourage you to go back and listen to episodes one and two. In addition to the Desert Storm podcasts, we'll also be tracing the course of the war on our website, aljazeera.com. So check that out. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake.